You're listening to the On The Go With VAO News Podcast for the week ending June 3rd, 2016. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This is our weekly recap of the top headlines from the Daily Acquisition News for this short post-holiday week. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Bill Olfer, VAO content developer and senior news writer. And I'm Dara Curran, content developer and fellow news writer. The General Services Administration and Office of Personnel Management had a whole, what, two weeks following the award of their Human Capital and Training Solutions, or the HCATS contracts, before progress was brought to a screeching halt by a total of 26 protests filed with the Government Accountability Office. On May 16th, GSA and OPM had announced they selected 109 vendors for the contract, but no matter how many folks you invite to the party, there will always be some hurt feelings. So, the 100-day clock for GAO to consider and rule on the merits of the challenges starts now, meaning decisions will likely not be forthcoming until August or September. GSA's 18F group is working to develop an alternative identifier to the DUNS number as an interim solution while the Office of Management and Budget examines viable long-term options to the proprietary Dun & Bradstreet product. Data Coalition Executive Director Hudson Hollister pointed out that something like the Legal Entity Identifier, a 20-digit code already widely used internationally, would let the government easily unify a company's records across all federal organizations. Could be things like SEC filings, tax data, EPA reviews, all of that could be linked to contracting and grants data. This, of course, might make some companies a little bit nervous, but I can see certainly there's some potential solutions for this uh, to the constant problems of vetting favored socioeconomic classes of firms and small businesses, for example. And be quite a bit harder to get away with fraudulently calling yourself a service-disabled veteran-owned small business if VA records are right there at the tap of the fingers. So potentially some interesting things could be coming out of that switchover. Excellent. The Small Business Administration has published a final rule amending its regulations related to small business and socioeconomic program set-asides and small business subcontracting, as required by the 2013 National Defense Authorization Act. Effective June 30, 2016, the rule clarifies certain roles and responsibilities of procurement center representatives, implements a new calculation for subcontracting limits based on the percentage of the overall award amount that a prime contractor spends on its subcontractors. It clarifies that limitations on subcontracting and the non-manufacturer rule do not apply to small business set-aside contracts valued between $3,000 and $150,000. It clarifies that contractor noncompliance with a subcontract plan's goal can result in breach of contract and be considered in past performance evaluations. And finally, it allows for joint ventures as long as each partner individually classifies as small under NAICS. GSA has published a proposed amendment to the GSA acquisition regulation to address common commercial supplier agreement terms that are inconsistent with or create ambiguity with federal law. And generally here we're talking about online usage agreements and terms of agreements such as registration requirements, termination clauses, uh, things like that with online service providers like Facebook, Twitter, and other applications. Mm-hmm. Now you want to review the proposed specifics if this would affect your work, but overall the rule would highlight common unenforceable terms in the commercial items clause at FAR 52.212-4 and clarify the order of precedence on the terms to help 
help eliminate the need for time-consuming negotiations. Comments on the proposed rule are due by August 1st. This week we have two items that straddle the line between headlines and discussion because they're a little bit involved. The Government Accountability Office and Court of Federal Claims are at odds over whether a protester has standing to challenge a fellow awardee's place on a multiple award IDIQ contract. The RFP in question anticipated the award of approximately four IDIQ contracts, but reserved the right to award additional contracts after the initial pool if it appeared there was a shortfall in meeting requirements. Now, about a month after making five original awards, the agency made a sixth, and that prompted the protesters' filing. The agency did attempt to take corrective action after the protesters' initial challenge, but I'm going to skip the back and forth that happened there to get to the crux of this legal question portion, which is... The agency argued the protester was not an interested party to pursue the protest. They already had a place on the contract, after all, so they were getting money, and what was their problem, right? The protester said, uh, yes, we are totally interested, because bringing in a sixth entity reduces our slice of the task order pie. GAO noted the RFP only guaranteed contract holders at least $2,500 of work and a fair opportunity to compete for future task orders and pointed out that the protester did not demonstrate any reason the sixth entity's addition would adversely affect either of those conditions, and therefore they sided with the agency that the vendor was not an interested party to bring a protest. Yes, and, and they, they actually took this to the Court of Federal Claims twice. Um, you know, the first time the agency mm-hmm. took its corrective action, the second time, here we are again. Mm-hmm. Um, the agency here asked uh, for this to be dismissed, and they again argued uh, the contract awardees are barred from filing bid protests. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a matter for contract dispute. It is not a protest. Right. Um, however, the court concluded that the protester, uh, because it was a bidder on the underlying contract and it did demonstrate a direct economic interest in the outcome of the case, um, it also the protester also alleged violations of procurement law and regulations because the agency did not formally make a determination that capabilities were not being fulfilled before awarding the additional contract. Uh, therefore, COFC determined that the vendor was in fact an interested party withstanding to pursue a protest of the award and denied the government government's motion to dismiss the protest. Um, however, COFC did not rule on the merits of the case, only that the protester was eligible to challenge the award of that sixth IDIQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now possibly the agency and awardee can appeal, uh, but otherwise the contractor will be free to argue the actual merits of its case with GAO and prove that it had a direct economic interest. Yes, and I'm sure the agency who awarded this is just chomping at the bit to give that protester as many fat, valuable task orders as possible. <laughs> well, they had one, so they're doing, they did something right. They had oh, one. my gosh. You know, sometimes I think this should be included in performance evaluations. You know, if a decision comes in your favor, obviously, you know, that you were within your rights and that should not, you know, be counted against you. But, gosh, if you make yourself a thorn in everybody's side and then don't end up carrying the day, I don't know, I... <laughs> I think you should get marked like a rabble rouser or something and at least get minus one or two points on an evaluation <laughs> for that or something. <laughs> Ten points from Slytherin. <laughs> we also saw some new regulations come out from the Department of Labor that take effect on December 1st, 2016. And at first glance, it seemed pretty straightforward, not very acquisition related, more like, ooh, how is this going to affect my payroll? But apparently, these new regulations would expand contractor employee eligibility for overtime time pay, and that could in turn have significant impact on contract costs. Now, you authored the news piece on this. Why don't you break it down for us? Okay, so 
Yeah, it's fairly straightforward. Um, May 23rd, Labor published a final rule expanding coverage of overtime pay requirements under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that act is the one that guarantees a minimum wage for all hours worked and also overtime pay of time and a half for hours worked over 40 during the work week. FLSA also clarifies who does and does not get overtime, and this is based on salary level. So now DOL is updating the standard salary and total annual compensation requirements so that more executive, administrative, and professional workers, um, what's what's normally called or what normally referred to as white-collar workers, um, are eligible for overtime. And now you may have heard those nightmare stories about the Dunkin' Donuts manager who make makes forty thousand dollars a year but has to work eighty hours a week, right? So oh my uh, gosh, I haven't heard that. No wonder that, that time to make the donuts guy look so tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, that was on. NPR. PRs. That oh, is that no. is a thing. Um, you know, labor didn't go into that kind of detail in the regulations, of course, but that is the, the administration's policy objective uh, to help lower wage workers get paid for the work that they do and to right. kind of end abuse of the term, oh, your salary, so you don't get overtime, mm. um, which is fairly common. So with these updates, employees who earn less than $913 per week or $47,476 annually will be eligible for overtime. Now, the previous level was $455 per week or $23,660 per year. So DOL has doubled the cutoff threshold oh, for man. overtime eligibility for quote-unquote salaried employees mm -hmm. um, who are not exec, you know, basically executives and managers and things like that. Uh, the new rec regulations also make salary level exceptions for employees who live in areas where the cost of living is high, uh, LA, New York City, probably Boston, um, and it provides for automatic updates of these numbers every three years to ensure they don't become outdated. Okay, so far so good. It all sounds like, you know, thumbs up in fairness. Yes, it's, it's, again, it's an administration policy objective you know they, they've they've addressed yeah. contractor minimum wage all kinds of things so mm -hmm. um, but however this uh, you know, DOL did not you know go into all the ramifications of course they're just setting the policy in the regulation um, but the contractor related part of this was pointed out in a blog post by two lawyers from R Brown Rudnick um, clearly these overtime rules are not limited to fast food workers and managers uh, <laughs> so by expanding the pool of employees eligible for overtime under FLSA labor has also widened the number of contractor employees covered by Service Contract Act requirements for prevailing wages, health and welfare benefits, and paid holidays and vacations. Ooh, that's a whole set of things. Yes. <laughs> it's all starting so, to sound very expensive. Yes, so there's a lot more uh, contractor employees potentially covered by those requirements. So that in turn, of course, could increase your contract costs because mm -hmm. If the contract contains the clause at FAR 52.222-43, Fair Labor Standards Act and Service Contract Labor Standards Price Adjustment uh, for multiple year and option contracts, contractors could seek a price adjustment. Uh, further, if they interpret this requirement that additional employees must be covered or are covered by SCA as a change to the contract not just a cost adjustment, price adjustment, but as an actual change to the underlying contract, then they could be entitled to seek additional concessions. Whoa. Yeah, so it's, it's a big potential 
can of worms. So the, the rule's not effective until December 1st, uh, so there's time to review contracts covered by SCA and assess contractors' current overtime costs, uh, the potential for increased costs. So I would encourage you to crunch those numbers. It might also be a good time to assess how your office manages contractor OT and how your contractor manages their OT mm-hmm. and, and talk to your contractors. Do they have employees that will be affected by this change? How will they handle it? Uh, will they hire more employees so they don't have to rely on overtime? Uh, will they raise wages so that effective pl- employees won't be eligible for OT? Um, but again, this, this is all kind of things that will increase costs. You know, more employees or more wages uh, could potentially give you a hit on the contract. Uh, so there's a lot of questions that uh, were not readily apparent or may not have been readily apparent when labor announced the changes. Uh, but I think we can be sure that contractors are looking at their contracts and they are asking these mm, questions. Yes. Uh, mm. So I, I would hope no one is caught off guard in six months but we do have six months uh, before the rule goes into effect uh, so there is time to dive into those contract files which Mm. i suspect folks are doing if they're paying attention well that's a great summary thank you very much and now i'm thinking about donuts so (laughs) that is it for us for this week if you're a government agency subscriber to the virtual acquisition office website you can find links to the news stories we covered on the same page where you downloaded the podcast Uh, Thank you for tuning in today. Join us again next Friday, June 10th, to catch up on all the latest developments from the Daily Acquisition News.